And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you so much for joining me today. We are continuing our study today on uh, salvation in the series we've been uh, doing for the last, I think, three weeks. This is our third week and fourth week, maybe. Who's counting at this point? We're going to do six, seven, eight weeks, maybe. We're so delighted to um, be joined by Dr. Peter Kapsner. Peter, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here, as always. You know, when I started uh, having this idea, I, I, I prayed. I said, Lord, who do you want to be part of this? You know, who do you want on the show? And he almost never mentioned me, but he did mention oh. Ian Paul. <laughs> I think that's a great choice uh, on that. Um, I, you know, I've never been somebody's answer to prayer before, Bill, so I'm excited that Ian might be. <laughs> well, Ian's, Ian's just one of my very favorite guests that I've had on, and he is a theologian, and he's an author, a speaker. He's the associate, associate minister at St. Nick's in Nottingham, and also a professor uh, at the University of Nottingham, and he's the managing editor of Grove Books. Grove Books is awesome. So uh, I want to now welcome to the show Dr. Ian Paul. Ian, welcome. Thank you very much, Bill. It's really good to be with you. I'm going to have to work on your English pronunciation, though, and get you to get the Nottingham bit again. Oh, yeah. I've been working on that ever since, you know, we first met. So I'm still struggling. It I'm seemed gonna... close. I mean, it, it seemed close, Bill, on that one. It was definitely not Nottingham from New Jersey this time. That, that one seemed pretty close. <laughs> I've been working on him, Peter. I've been working on him. That's great. I love it. Well, Ian, uh, first of all, thank you for uh, saying yes to this. We're so excited. I, the, the whole subject of salvation is is what we do here at Faith Radio. We want people to uh, come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and we want them to accept this beautiful gift of uh, salvation and be invited into the kingdom, into God's plan for their life. And uh, we recently, uh, Peter and I, came across a, uh, an article that you had written in, uh, uh, say, com. Is salvation a wide open space? And that intrigued both of us. Yeah, and I the reason why I wrote it is because one of the things that's really struck me as I've reflected on the language of salvation in the Scriptures— is that there's a very rich theme uh, which talks about salvation as God's release. Uh, there's a sense in which I, I find it really interesting that, that people worry that we use too much religious language, and you know those who aren't used to faith are, uh, are not going to understand the terms we use. But the really interesting thing about salvation is that all I have to do, well, I was going to say football, all I have to do is turn on the soccer news for, for, for you or <laughs> football news for us, and you talk about, you know, Jurgen Klopp is the savior of the team, you know, or, or, the, or, the, or the striker is the savior. I guess you get the same kind of language in, in all sorts of sports, team sports, where, you know, someone's amazing performance or someone's come in you and they've, they've saved the team. And, you know, the language of salvation is language that has, has such practical currency and, and, and it appeals to our our sense of the fact that, you know, there are situations where we feel lost or we feel we're under pressure or we're, we're constrained or we're trapped maybe, and then someone comes along and they they save us. They they release us from the constraint or the, the, the threat of defeat or whatever it is. And, and it's really I found it really interesting to reflect on how we find a rich seam of that kind of idea in Scripture, talking about God's work and what he does. I mean, a couple of the obviously the Psalms are places to look for this. So I was very struck in Psalm 18. It says, I call to the Lord, says the psalmist who is worthy of praise. I've been saved from my enemies. And here's the really vivid language. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. I mean, that's just amazingly vivid language. But the Lord rescued me and released me. And says the psalmist, he brought me out into a spacious place and he rescued me because he delighted in me. So that's a really strong theme 
in all through scripture in all sorts of different places and you find this in the ministry of jesus as well people who are trapped because of fear or because of disease or because of illness. I, i'm just thinking about the the woman with the issue of blood in mark chapter five where you know she's just she's metaphorically hemmed in by all her problems but then she's literally hemmed in by the crowd as well and she just touches jesus and he he says woman your faith has saved you meaning it's brought her healing but it's also brought her a freedom. So that's one really, really significant strand. But here's the paradox. I think I also noticed is that actually very often when God saves us, he saves us from our kind of our dissipation, our, our, our aimlessness, our, our wandering around doing nothing and actually draws us into something very specific and direct. And in some ways, when God saves us, he actually brings us into something which is in some ways more constraining than what we had before. So Jesus actually says, you know, in Matthew's gospel, he says, uh, you know, wide is the way of destruction and narrow is the way of salvation. So I just think there's a fascinating tension uh, between those two perspectives on salvation. Mm. Yeah, and, and just as you, there's so many different directions we could go on this based on uh, some of the different angles you just took there. But I, w what struck me was how often you were just speaking about salvation as something that's happening in our in our present time, in our present space. And it's something we've been talking about quite a bit in, in this series. And uh, you use Jurgen Klopp as an example of sort of a savior of the Liverpool team yeah. who came in. And, and obviously Liverpool just won the Premier League title and he would be seen as somebody who came and and released them from sort of the the trappings of the last so many ever years where they they haven't been able to win and now they're there so so often i think people think of salvation as something that we get when we die which just simply means that we uh, avoid the fires of hell and we are saved to be released into eternity into heaven and of course that is a dimension of this but do you have any thoughts on why maybe we've spent so much time emphasizing the future sal uh, salvation dimension as opposed to so many of the different things that you just talked about? And then I'd love to get into each one of those things as well. I wonder, I mean, you've kind of picked up on some of the language that, Peter. I mean, the idea that, that God saves us to go to heaven when we die, <laughs> I think, <laughs> is language that comes from Christian tradition. I think probably particularly in the 19th century more than it comes from Scripture. Uh, yeah. it's really, I find it really fascinating that when we read Paul, for example, Paul uses language at certain points of saying we have been saved. And other places he uses language about we are being saved. And at other places he uses language that we will be saved. Um, and there's a sense in which for Paul, what Jesus has done, particularly well, in his death, but in his resurrection, you know, for a first century Jew, the resurrection of the dead is something that comes at the end of time, at the end of this age, this evil world, which is going to be uh, wrapped up by God. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth are going to be made. The old heavens and the old earth are going to be wrapped up. And this new age is going to come. And for Paul, that new age, the future, as it were, has broken into the present in Jesus. Mm. So when we're baptized into Jesus' death and resurrection, we're baptized into dying to ourselves, into the fact that our old selves, our sinful self dies in the water of baptism. We're washed from our sin. But when we come out of the water, I hope we come out as well. If, you, if you're baptized, you can't just go into the water. You've got to come out too. Otherwise, it's not really baptism. Yeah. It's, it's drowning. <laughs> Paul, Paul says that we're, we're baptized into Jesus' death, but then we're raised out of the waters of baptism into his resurrection life. And Paul seems to think that we begin to step into that future salvation now in the present. And I think that's why he uses future language as well as 
past language, something decisive has happened, and present language, something is happening now. So, for instance, one of my favorite New Testament verses, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, new creation, that, what he means by that is that the new world, the new age to come is now broken into our present lives. And so we begin now to experience the salvation that we will fully see, not simply when we die and go to heaven, but actually when we, we die, we sleep in death. And then at the end of the age, we're raised to new life in Christ or, or to use the image of Revelation, the, the new Jerusalem comes from heaven down to earth. So that's why I think it's a mixture of past. It's, it's decisive past. It's reality in the present and it's hope for the future as well. Hmm. There's so many uh, just parts of what you said, too, in terms of um, that reference, even Old Testament ideas of salvation. And I love this article that you've written as salvation, a wide open space. I, before we get into some more of this New Testament language around salvation, I would I would have to believe that whatever the understanding is of Paul when he's writing about salvation and Jesus as he's proclaiming that salvation is near, that it would have to be at least somewhat consistent with the threads of salvation all throughout the Old Testament, which were ways in which God was saving people in their existing circumstances. Would that be fair? And how would you begin to outline salvation sort of in the Old Testament to begin with? Yeah, I think I want to hold on to both the, dis the differences, the discontinuity and the continuity between the Old, the Old and the New Testament. I think it's often claimed that in the Old Testament, that the, the writers had a hope, as it were, only for this world, in that it seems so often that the Old Testament writers are, are refer to this this shadowy world of they call Sheol, you know, and that that when we die, you know, there's a sense that that's that's kind of the end, and and there's a there's an expectation that if we're going to see God act, we're going to see God deliver us, we must see it in this life before death. But I don't think that's entirely true. That does seem to be a, do a dominant theme. But as I read through the Old Testament, there's a realization that. God's salvation must transcend death. So again, we find that in the Psalms. We find it in Psalm 22. We, we find it in the, the hope of the psalmist of David saying, you know, I will see the faithfulness of the Lord uh, in the land of the living. So that, that actually in the end, death is not the end. And of course, that, that understanding develops as we read through the New Testament. And particularly, we get into uh, the later prophets like Ezekiel, where he has the hope of resurrection life, in, in uh, starting in Ezekiel 37, um, but also particularly in Isaiah, where Isaiah sees the fact that, okay, it's all very well to hope for salvation in this present realm, but we know that this present realm isn't the way God wanted to be. We know that this is a, a world of sin, uh, where there's still evil at work, and our longing is not so much that God will simply save us within this world, but actually God will reorder and re remake the world. So... Mm -hmm there'll be a world where there is no possibility of evil, there is no possibility of sin, and that, that you know, Jerusalem, the, the home of God's temple presence, will be lifted up, and all the nations, this is very early on in Isaiah, all the nations will be drawn to it. So you get this, this, this beginning of the unfolding of a hope of salvation transcending death, and also salvation transcending Israel, ethnic Israel. So salvation becomes the hope for the whole world. And, of course, you get all those texts picked up in, in the New Testament, uh, in Matthew, picking up Old Testament references to Jesus's life, you know, how, how Jesus fulfills these hopes. And of course, as, as Bill knows, my favorite book of the whole New Testament, the book of Revelation, which is just saturated with those Old Testament references. And it reworks them to say, look, these are fulfilled in Jesus, in the Lamb who was slain, and now who reigns on the throne with God. Well, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a little break. We are uh, in our series on salvation, and just I'm loving this. Dr. Ian Paul is our guest. I think this might be our, our most spectacular uh, uh, session so far, and it's probably largely due to the fact that I'm doing next to no talking. 
uh, which makes it that much more interesting. So let me take a uh, short break. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have our Salvation Series underway today. And it is Wednesday, which is the day we do it. And uh, Dr. Ian Paul is our distinguished guest. He's a theologian and author and speaker. And I, I'm getting nervous as to how to pronounce Nottingham, but there we go. I'd give it another shot. <laughs> and managing editor of Grove Books. You can always go to Grove Books, check out the library. It's great. And he also, uh, his website is uh, ianpaul.com. You can just go there. It's also Safizo. Safidzo. Uh, Safidzo. You're getting there. That's I'm getting cool. there, yeah. 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 Searching for Ian Paul blog is a lot easier way to find yeah, it. I thought so, too. So uh, uh, <laughs> welcome back, and uh, so far this has uh, been fascinating. I just love it. Peter, you were on a really nice theme right before the break. I want to try to get back to that. Okay, sure, yeah. I, I think, uh, Ian, just picking up on something that we left off on towards the end there, it sounds like you're using language along the lines of not the idea that that our future salvation would be experienced where we sort of get zapped up into a floating barge of gold or somewhere just past Mars. But, but it's much more the idea that God is actually going to save the existing world and redeem and restore it and, and sort of heaven and earth become one again, to use the language maybe of some of the hymns that are there. So can you speak a bit about the salvation that the earth itself will experience in the end? Yeah, and again, um, I've said this before in relation to the Old Testament, but again, I hope you don't mind me reaching for the language of continuity and discontinuity. Um, the language that we find at the end of Isaiah in Isaiah 65 is that the old uh, heavens and heavens and heavens and earth, interestingly, Isaiah talks about heavens and earth together, are going to be wrapped up like a scroll and that God will make a new heavens and a new earth. And this idea is picked up in Revelation 21. Um, now, we've got to treat this, if I can say, with its full symbolic seriousness. One of the things that people stumble about in the vision in Revelation is it says, and there was no more sea. And for those who like to go to vacation, you know, down by the seaside, down to the beach, they're a bit <laughs> disappointed with that. But of course, what John is doing in Revelation is operating within the symbolic significance of these things all through Scripture. And in all through Scripture from the very beginning, we find in Genesis chapter 1, we find the, the, the sea, the deep, which was, which was void, and the Spirit of God is hovering over, so he's bringing order out of the chaos. Then we find in the Psalms that the sea is the place where Leviathan, the monster, uh, and Rahab, the deep-sea monsters, signifying the mysterious forces in the world, which God himself is actually sovereign over. And then in Daniel, we find these four beasts emerging from the sea. And, and we're told there that the sea, the, the surging sea, signifies the people of the world out of which these evil systems can come. And then Revelation says there is, there, were, there is no more sea, meaning that in this recreation of the world, not only is there no, no evil, there's nothing unclean, but actually there's no possibility of evil coming. So it, it, in one way, there's continuity with this world, but in another way, there's significant discontinuity. And, and again, one of the things that I, I find really striking in that vision of the New Jerusalem, well, first of all, as you said, it, it's about the New Jerusalem coming from heaven to earth. So the heavenly and the earthly become reunited, which, of course, is the answer to the prayer that we pray every day, where we pray, our Father in heaven, uh, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying daily that the heavenly reality and truth of who God is will increasingly become realized on earth, and we'll see it in our world around us. So we're 
already beginning to see that present tense reality. But we know that's not going to be completely fulfilled uh, until the day when Jesus returns. And then you have the paradox of the New Jerusalem, where uh, John says that the the gates are open because there is no night, and city gates in the ancient world always closed at night. That was the time of danger. That was a time when uh, the enemy came. That's when time of thieves broke in. But there is no night, so there's no time. There's no opportunity for evil, uh, and the gates are always open. So there's a constant welcome in. But there's angels at each gate, and they're guarding it so that no unclean thing can come in. So again, you have this tension, this new new idea, this new place where where everything is welcome, everyone is welcome, all the best of, of human endeavor and human imagination can be brought into this, this city, but nothing unclean will come in there. So I, I can't imagine a, a place or a situation or a, a society, a group of people where, you know, all the best comes, but nothing that's evil will be admitted. But that's the mystery of, of the new creation. That's the mystery of, of what we realize when we actually see salvation fully realized. Hmm. And, and, and when we get pictures of that, of our future, uh, to what extent is the church uh, meant to shine the light of our future in the present, to bear witness to God, to bear witness to the salvation? Uh, there, there seems like there's an empowerment to live, to, at least to some degree, this future life that we're going to be experiencing when, when Jesus returns in his fullness. And, and he sort of imparts that now. That's part of the salvation. So could you speak a bit about the role of the church to shine that light of the salvation in the present? Yeah, and I think I found it really helpful when I hear other people talking about both now of salvation and the not yet of salvation. Yeah. I think, yep. I think you know, I think one of the things that that, that some one thing some churches struggle with is saying, "Hey, you know what? God is wonderful. We're perfect. Come and join us." And uh, <laughs> well, I, you know, I've never. I, I always say, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll spoil it. You know, there's no such thing. As, there's no such thing as a perfect church. You know, at, at this side of Jesus' return, at what we are is we are forgiven sinners, and 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 we are on a journey. It's had a decisive beginning when we've come to faith and we've been baptized and we received the Spirit. Uh, so the journey has, has, has started. And you know, when I look back on my my journey, my coming to faith, I could see that something decisive happened and there was a change. And you know, uh, I, I used to. I don't know if you'll be shocked by this, Bill, but when I was a teenager, I used to swear like a trooper. Is that a phrase no, you use? No, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know I, I mean? think we need but to wrap I... this up. <laughs> but a, when that was I a great to... episode, Ian. Thanks. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks so much. When, I came, when I came to faith, all of that fell away. And retrospectively, I realized, looking back, that there was a big change in me. And it wasn't a change that I engineered. It was because, you know, as a, as a teenager, I was, you know, all boys, big, all boys school in London. And, you know, it's very competitive. I felt very insecure. When I found faith, I discovered God who loved me, then that insecurity fell away. So the need to swear fell away as well. <laughs> um, so so there, was, there was change. But, you know, I did today, I was on the stairs and, you know, I walked up the stairs and I turned around and turned down. And I hit my head on a, a we got an old house and the stairs is a bit, and oh boy, that really hurt, you know. So, and I realized that, Okay, well, God's delivered me of, of, of one way of life, but do you know there's still a bit of work to be done on me, you know? I could tell by my response there. So we've got to be honest on the one hand, Peter, that the church is not perfect. But we've yeah. also got to say, hey, you know, we've discovered treasure. One of the, the, the Bible readings for last Sunday in the lectionary for those who use, the churches that use the, the common reading pattern for the, for the Gospels was the, the, one of my favorite parables, that the man who is just digging getting the ground ready and his spade hits something and he digs around and he suddenly finds this treasure there and he just goes and sells everything and buys it because he said you know i've got to have this this is the best thing ever 
And so he's showing, again, this discontinuity. He's, he's, he's discovered this treasure, and, and things are going to change for him. So we're not perfect, and we still get things wrong, and, and we've still got to apologize sometimes for the things that, that folk in church say and do. And yet we've discovered something wonderful, and it's not us. We don't point people to ourselves. We point people to the treasure that we found and said, you know what? You can find this too, the treasure of salvation, the treasure of, of what God is giving us in Jesus, what he has given us in Jesus, and what he will give us in Jesus in the future when, you know, when that, that, that treasure is really fully ours in, in, in the new age to come. Ian, I'd love for you to talk about this paradox between being delivered into this wide open space and then yet you're on this more narrow path of obedience and it's not constricting, is it? It's liberating. It is. And again, you see, I would say we can see that from our own experience. So let's go back to Jurgen Klopp in Liverpool. I reckon that the we- part of the reason that they won this season is because, do you know what? I bet he had a really disciplined regime for the players. Hmm. So he released them from one kind of constraint, but he did that by inviting them into com- you know, as manager, he's the boss, compelling them into a different kind of constraint. And uh, again, I, I find the same. Uh, my kids, they're kind of uh, grown up and left home now, they're 20, 22, 24. Um, and, you know, one of the things I just noticed as a parent is that if you love your kids, you don't just let them do anything. You, you love your children by by disciplining them, by saying, look, you know, there's a right way to do stuff. And when you do that, when you exercise discipline, when you put constraints around them, that's what enables them to grow. I think, Bill, you'll know that I love gardening. And again, one of the things I noticed with plants, plants will do best when they have the right constraints around them. Mm-hmm. I've just been going around. We've had a lot of rainstorm here, and I've got some crocosmia. They're a beautiful orange flower. But, you know, under the rain, they've just flopped over. And they're not, they're not doing that, the thing they're supposed to do. So what I've done is I've put some stakes in. I've tied it round. I've constrained them so that they can stand at their full height and they can be the best they are and everyone else can see their glory as well. And all these, all these different things, they're just examples saying, you know, Jesus releases us from the, the, the things that have enslaved us, from our sin, from our, our wrong desires, from our wrong behaviors, from our insecurity, from our, our bitterness, from our anger. He releases us from those things, but he does that in order that we can live the disciplined life of the Spirit. You know, Paul says in uh, Galatians 5, he says, you know, if the Spirit has given you life, has given you freedom, then walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Don't use your freedom to be enslaved by other desires, but use your freedom to freely live in obedience to God by his spirit. So I think that's where the, the tension comes in between, you know, is it a wide open space or is it a constraint? Uh, and, you know, Paul was amazing. And Paul talks about the, the freedom that Christ has given him. But it's a freedom that he then uses to discipline himself. He says, you know, I, I beat my body. I'm like a, a soldier in training. or I'm like a farmer who's disciplined. He gets up early with the crops in order that I can be really fruitful in this salvation uh, that God has, has called mm-hmm. me into. All right, let me take a little break. Uh, Dr. Ian Paul is our guest. We're talking uh, salvation. We're doing that every Wednesday in our series. We're loving this. I'll be uh, back in just 90 seconds. Listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold, that we want to hear from you. We'd love to know what you think about the show. Well, most of us do. Bill says this week he's only accepting five star reviews. 
Either way, you can take the official Afternoons with Bill Arnold listener survey. It just takes a couple of minutes and you get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Text the word survey to 877-933-2484. Find it online at myfaithradio.com slash survey. show so glad to have dr ian paul as our guest today dr peter kapsner and myself are in now a seven or eight week series on salvation and we thought well let's go talk to all of our good friends that we admire and respect and get their input and their uh, perspective on salvation uh, dr ian paul is our guest today um peter i'm learning all kinds of new things today i don't know about you yeah, it's it's really just incredible. Uh, <laughs> my mind is sort of spinning uh, with too. all the different possibilities. So you ask. About, so right? you ask the next question. <laughs> oh, great! Thank you. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I, I think just picking up where we were too a bit, Ian, is um, what I'm hearing you say a little bit is around the discipleship journey, and yeah. I know certainly in some churches in which I've been that I've really appreciated and enjoyed, and we talked about it in seminary at times as well, is that if we're not careful, we might end up emphasizing something called salvation or the idea, at least in that salvation, of getting into heaven when you die by praying a prayer or doing a ritual. But then discipleship from there kind of becomes functionally optional. It's like, well, I'm going to give this thing a shot, but it's really not all that important because I've already secured my heavenly destiny. But you're speaking of something different, almost where salvation and discipleship are working together hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, there's some some Christian traditions which say it's all about the moment of change. It's all about conversion and being converted. And then that's it. You're either converted or you're not converted. And if you're converted, then you, you're just in the waiting room. You're just waiting for life to go on by until you get your inheritance. Um, there are other traditions which, which take the opposite view and say, oh, no, 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 it's not about conversion. It's about journeying. And, you know, to be honest, it the, the, all the times, the more I immerse myself in the scriptures, the more I see it is both and. It's both change and its journey. Uh, and again, you can see that both in terms of the content of the New Testament, but also in terms of the way that the gospel writers tell their story. Luke's gospel, for example, uh, Luke, uh, in the first half, he talks about Jesus' birth. He talks about his early ministry in Nazareth. And then in, in Luke 9:58, he says, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. So there's a decision here. Jesus knows what he needs to do. He knows where he's going. He knows what he's going to involve. And he makes a decision. But after that, the whole of Luke's gospel is all structured around this journey. And this becomes a metaphor for following Jesus. So Jesus encounters people and they say, hey, Jesus, I've got this question. I've got this. And in the end, Jesus says, look, are you going to come on the journey with me or not? And for each of them, they have to make a decision as to whether they're going to journey with Jesus. And I find that's really helpful to have the both hand. You know, I know that in my life I had to make a decision. And then each day when I get up in the morning, I have to reiterate that decision and say, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the decision I made in the past. And I'm going to live it today. And then each day I live it out and I continue on that journey. Uh, and I think we've got to have both hands. As you say, if we only have, oh, it's just a decision, that's it, then there's no actual thinking about that that journey of discipleship. Because each of us is is, is growing. Each of us is learning more. Uh, you know, and, and, and Paul uses this language as well. In Revelation 12, he talks about, you know, being renewed by the transforming of our So being transformed by the renewing of our mind, by the Holy Spirit, uh, which is our spiritual worship. So the Spirit is at work in us, constantly shaping us and forming us uh, and filling us with hope and, and enabling us to be ready for that moment when we, we see the Lord face to face. So I think it, I think it's got to be both and. It's got to be decision. 
a decisive break with the past, but it's got to be a continuing journey uh, into the future as well. So I don't know if that answers your dilemma there, Peter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does. I don't know, Bill, if, if you've experienced that a bit too, where there has been a lot of emphasis on making sure we get people saved or the, the point of conversion, but then what happens to the discipleship journey from that point? Uh, you're completely spot on about that. I hear the point of conversion to be the most important, and then the follow-up and the discipleship is not nearly as strong or as interesting. Yeah. That's where you get messy yeah. with people. You get involved in their lives. But again, you see, I think it's implicit in, in, in the every way that Paul talks about, uh, you know, that living this new life. So I've talked about Galatians 5 and the Spirit. But going back to that verse in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians five seventeen, you know, and he says, uh, you're a new creation. So you're starting to live this new life. And it's come about, the language he uses is reconciliation with God. God has turned you from the enemy you were when, when you were doing your own thing, where you were just following your own desires, you were following sin. And he's, he's reconciled you through the cross into being his friend. Now he's given each of us a job to do, and that is to help other people also to become reconciled. So Paul immediately goes on and says, you know, I urge you, be reconciled with God. And we have this ministry of reconciliation. He's, he's inviting them to say, do you know what? Okay, you, you, you've been converted. You've started this new life. Now there's a job to do. There's a job to do both for you in growing in holiness, but also for you in learning how to invite other people to experience this this amazing change of status, this reconciliation with God, where the God that you didn't know, the God who was distant, the God who maybe you just thought was angry, now comes close in Jesus and, 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 and comes at great cost to be your friend. So you've got this great good news to pass on to other people. There's, there's, there's things to do. Hmm. Ian, a question I get from listeners from time to time is, how can I stop questioning my salvation? Um, well, I guess... I think that there's different things you can do appealing to different parts of why we feel that. Uh, you know, Martin Luther used to say, whenever he had doubts or whenever he felt the devil's attacking him, he used to say, apparently, baptismus sum, which is Latin for, I am baptized. So uh, there's a sense in which we just need to go back to some of the facts. You know, mm -hmm. Jesus, has died, Jesus has died for me. He's been raised for me. I've opened my life to him. And in a sense, my salvation doesn't depend on me. It depends on him, and I can trust him. So, so th there's something objective there. I think the second thing is something subjective as well. Uh, in Romans 5, Paul says, you know, the, uh, um, the uh, hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So I would also say to anyone who's got questions, I say, well, okay, so you've made a decision for Jesus. Uh, have you also invited you to be filled with the Spirit? The Spirit of God, because God wants to come and make his home in you. Uh, he wants to, you to become his holy temple presence by his spirit in you. So I would pray for somebody. I just I just pray, God, will you fill this person with your spirit? And will you give them a sense of uh, reassurance uh, in themselves as well? So there's those two things. There's the objective, there's the subjective. I think also I'd say there's the community as well. I, I, I don't find, in my experience, for myself and for other people, um, that we don't we don't go on well, we don't grow in our confidence, we don't grow in our assurance unless we make a habit of meeting with others, reading the scriptures together, growing in our faith, sharing testimony one with one another about what God is doing. And you know, there's nothing more encouraging than hearing that that whatever we're feeling, that God is at work in in the world around us through the testimony of other people. Um, sometimes when we're going through a difficult time, I, I remember actually not long after I came to faith, two or three years later, I had a very strange incident where it kind of felt like the lights went out. And I had a period of maybe two, three years kind of feeling 
I mean, maybe Dark Knight of the Soul is a bit of an exaggeration, but it felt like God was, was suddenly distant. And so my constant prayer was to God to say, well, you know, come on, make yourself real like you were in those early days. And I just had to wait. And one of the things I sensed God saying was, well, you know, in the early days, everything was easy. Reading scripture was easy. Praying was easy. Now it's time to grow up. <laughs> now it's time to say, okay, okay, now I want you to get up and each day and walk. And, and I'm not going to just spoon feed you. You've got to, there's work to do. And, and you've got to knuckle down and get on with it. Now, I don't, I don't mean that in a hard sense for people, but actually, you know, there comes a time when we need to say, well, okay, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to get on with it and I'm going to read scripture and I'm going to live my life the best I can as a testimony to Jesus. So I would say all those things build together. It's the objective reality of what God has done. It's uh, the experience of the spirit. It's living with others in community. God calls us into community of faith. And, and it's then us, you know, getting up and, 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 and getting on with life too. I think all of those things work together for me. That's brilliant. And Ian, too, when you talk about those, uh, just sort of that dark night of the soul, those times of God's absence, I know mm-hmm. those long stretches in my own life when it, I think, and I'm sure listeners can can relate to it, you start feeling frustrated, you feel alone, maybe it's not worth it. But uh, it seems like at least it's to, to some degree, God is inviting us even to a greater experience of salvation in those moments where yeah. our heart's getting less and less divided, that there, there gets to be a sense of longing that we might have from God because of absence that we may mm-hmm. not have because of presence. And, and it can begin to undivide the heart. Yeah, I agree. And interestingly, Peter, one of the things I found recently in the last few years, I've started doing this is I've become uh, I've made fasting more of a habit in my life. Uh, it's actually mm. quite good for my waistline as well. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and I think one of the reasons I was put off from fasting uh, in when I was younger was that, you know, if you're going to fast, you had to like do without food for 40 days or something like that, because that's what Jesus did. Actually, in Jesus' day, the most common form of fasting was fasting twice a week. And actually, we know that from other documents outside the New Testament, it was fasting on a Monday and a Thursday. You know, when the, the Jesus tells the story about the Pharisee and the, the tax collector who go before the temple, and the Pharisee says, oh, Lord, I wish that other men were like you, and I read the scriptures and all that kind of stuff. I fast twice a week. And uh, then the, the tax collector just bows before the, the God and says, you know, I, I'm, I'm a sinner. Now, when <laughs> Jesus says, don't be proud like the Pharisee, but he also says, do fast like the Pharisee. You know, he teaches that, uh, when his when he's asked about his fact his disciples don't fast, he says, "Well, the bridegroom's with them. They're feasting. They're celebrating. But they will fast when the bridegroom is gone. You know, when that when when Jesus has has gone to the Father. So he's expecting us to do this. Now, the reason I found fasting helpful is it exactly expresses what you just said about you know there are times when we we feel deprived of the sense of closeness of God. And this is this is drawing out our desire." Because there's a sense in which when we eat food, we're saying, well, this world is all there is. When we fast, we say, do you know what? This world isn't everything. There is a world to come. At the moment, I don't see it in its fullness. I'm deprived of it, just as at the moment I'm deprived of food. But as I fast, I can feel my longing for food. And that reminds me of my longing for this age to come, this hope that I'm looking forward to. So I, I found that has actually been a really good kind of physical reminder. And it's a reminder today because today's been, today's been a fasting day for me. So I've just, <laughs> I've just, uh, it's, so it's the evening here. I've just broken my fast with a, a light evening meal, but uh, during the day I've just been not eating. So it's just a, whenever you feel hungry, you kind of think, yeah, I haven't got any food. And then think, yeah. And, I, and, and actually the, the new Jerusalem hasn't come down to earth yet. And I'm living, I am living with satisfaction of what God has done now, but I'm also living with a longing for the mm. things I don't yet see. And, and, and God is drawing me into that, that future, that future fullness. 
I think it's time for a little break. We'll take a short one. We'll be right back. <laughs> Dr. Ian Paul is our guest. You know, we're all on uh, we're all on uh, Skype today, so we don't have eye contact with each other. So we're we're missing that courteous "you go next" nod. <laughs> so, so we'll uh, we'll be back in. Uh, in I thought I seconds. wanted to do the questions there. That's what the silence was. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll be back with our series on salvation in just a sec. Welcome back to the show. So glad uh, we're with Dr. Ian Paul today. We're talking about salvation. We're in our series with Dr. Peter Kapsner and myself. We're loving this. And uh, Dr. Ian Paul is uh, um, is a author and theologian and regular guest on my show. I just love having him on. And I wanted him to participate in our discussion on salvation. And you are giving us a ton of stuff to think about. I'm, I'm going to need to go through this more than once to process it all. So, uh, Ian, thank you so much for everything you've done so far. This has been great. To this point. Great to be with you. Yeah. Great to be with you. So uh, I would like to ask you a little bit of the re- the relationship between salvation uh, and forgiveness. Um, mm. I know as uh, when we accept Jesus, we, we receive salvation uh, mm. and forgiveness, um, but that has to be intentional. We need to come forward and say, forgive me my sins, don't we? Yeah, we do. And there is a strange uh, paradox, isn't there? There's a strange tension between, on the one hand, you know, being reconciled with God, uh, having uh, everything forgiven and, and, and have a relationship with him. But on the other hand, knowing that um, uh, we, we're not yet reached the perfection, the, the completeness that, that God longs for us. You know, there's a really challenging saying of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect, you know, love, don't just love your friends, love your enemies, bless those who curse you and persecute you, pray for, pray for your persecutors. And, you know, it just reminds us we've, we've got quite a long way to go before that. Um, one of the, uh, my favorite little um, uh, examples of this is in, uh, I'm in the, the Church of England, uh, which is, it's not quite the same as, as the Episcopal Church in, in the United States. It's, uh, we're kind of related, but, but actually very different. We're a we are a reformed church, and in our liturgy, one of the prayers is, keep us this day from every sin. And you're supposed to recite this at the beginning of the day. Now, that's a great prayer to pray, <laughs> but I kind of sometimes feel I get to the end of the day and thinking, well, either I didn't pray that or God didn't answer it, because I'm pretty sure it didn't happen. <laughs> but again, it's a really good way of keeping intention, saying, well, you know, we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit is working the fruit of the Spirit in us and forming that in us. So, yeah, we, we, we sense that God has changed us and is changing us. But I'm also conscious that there is frailty and there's still imperfection and, and that God's work won't be completed and, until the final day. That's why I'm on this journey of discipleship. So, so I, I think I value, again, in, in my denomination, one of the habits we have in the liturgy is actually to make it a regular thing at the beginning of a, a service to actually come before God. And, and we say a really beautiful prayer, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom, whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. So we're coming before God and saying, look, we might be able to pretend stuff to other people, but we stand here in your presence, so we can't pretend before you. You, you can see right through us. You know the state of our hearts. And you know that we're not perfect. 
So we still need, even though we've experienced your grace, we still need more of that. We, we still need uh, you to continue your work of, of, of purifying by your spirit. And that leads into, uh, interestingly, that leads into a reminder that God so loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation, and it assures us of that objective reality on the one hand, and then invites us to confess our sins so that we can, you know, we can keep a short account with God. We can keep the slate clean. Uh, and, and we're not living in pretense. And again, going back to Peter, your question about the nature of the church, it seems to me that's a really healthy dynamic in the local church as well. So we're not saying to people, hey, you know, we're perfect, we've got it right. We're saying we are forgiven sinners on a journey. Uh, we've, we've, we've come across this treasure, but we're still growing into it too. And, and we want to invite you to make a decision to come on that journey with us as well. So that, that feels to me like a, a healthy dynamic. And it does mean that, you know, again, in the Lord's Prayer, we are daily asking God to forgive and also practicing the consequence of that, which is that as we receive the, the forgiveness from God, we grow into forgiving others when they've hurt us too, which I know that is easy to talk about in theory. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's harder in practice. And particularly when we've been uh, seriously hurt, it, it's something that will often take a long time to, to come to terms with. But, but yeah, I think there's that dynamic constantly. Does that, Bill, does that answer your question? It does. It's a great answer to my question. It's, it's yeah, way more it answer than yeah. I even thought I'd get. <laughs> <laughs> well, and as you were talking about forgiveness and, and uh, what it can release in us, too, and I'm thinking now about the woman who busted the, the vial of alabaster oil at the feet of Jesus, oh, and, yeah. and his response in those moments was that yeah. he has been forgiven little, loves little, but he's been forgiven yeah. much, loves much. It, it seems yeah. like there could be this powerful relationship before between our experience of God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of one another and our ability to love both God and one another. Yeah, I, I agree. And and I, I've got to confess a bit of sort of testimony envy really here because, OK, so I swore like a trooper when I was at school. But, you know, I didn't do anything terrible. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, my biography won't make a great story. You know, quite pleasant middle class chap became a slightly more pleasant middle class chap. It doesn't sound very dramatic. You know, but, uh, and, and, you know, you do read these, these books, the testimonies that, that make in the publishing world, and they're really dramatic turnarounds and, and people who are drug dealers and in prison and that kind of stuff. And, and there's a sense in which both, both stories tell the truth, don't they? I mean, when you, the great thing, the really encouraging thing, when you see someone who's had a terrible life before and then dramatically turns around, it, it's helpful because it does tell us that, you know, that's the reality and truth, that even if we looked respectable, we were actually heading in a direction which was pretty self-sufficient and, and, and pretty self-centered. And in the end, that's, that's the ultimate truth is however respectable it looks, that's the way of death. And, and God in his grace has come and, and rescued us and, and put us on a new path. So there may be, again, it's a bit of, bit of both and, but uh, there's a, I, I have to resist the temptation to kind of like make my testimony sound more dramatic <laughs> than, it, than it really is. But. <laughs> Uh, for the person who uh, maybe is struggling with sin on an ongoing basis, Ian, and, and it's the same one over and over and over again, sort of this repeating sin, what, what sort of suggestions or thoughts might you have to, to help them along the way? I think that patience is a good virtue. There's a sense in which it's good to be impatient, to have that sense of longing. You say, I, I want to be in a different place. It, it's interesting that when Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13, the first thing he says is love is patient. Uh, if God loves us, then he is patient with us, probably more patient with us than, than, than we often are. Um, and I think, 
I wonder whether sometimes for us, for all of us, when we, we, we fall again to a, a, a sin that we've committed in the past and we've, we've kind of resolved to, to put aside and, and again we've stumbled, God, God is more patient with us than often we are with ourselves. And, and mm. he says that, you know, he is at work with us. You know, in Philippians 2, Paul says, God is at work within you to will and to work that which is pleasing in his sight. So, so don't give up. We may feel stuck, but actually God is at work with us and he's working at us. And the, the wheels of his, his refashioning our lives may seem to turn slowly, but they are turning. So I think that's, that's one thing I'd say to folks. Don't, don't be discouraged. God hasn't given up on you yet. I think the second thing I'd say is, and this is a really tough one as well, is that I found for things that are really important, I found that there's there's, there's no substitute for accountability. Mm. And particularly when there's something that we're embarrassed about or it's a secret sin, then that can be really tough. But if we can find, get into a place where we're in, we're in a, a trusting relationship with another Christian, we can actually say to them, well, maybe we can say to them, look, there's this thing, I can't tell you what it is, but it's really bugging me. Will you pray for me? And will you hold me to account? Um, it, I find it fascinating that there's there's no singular you in the New Testament. You know, when when Jesus is teaching, when Paul's writing, he always says you plural, and it's it's hidden in English. If you can read French or another language, then actually that's really handy because you can see straight away it's vous, it's in plural. And uh, I, we we often I think we just get so individualistic about this. We think it's just about me and God and God and me and me and my sin. Actually, God calls us into community, and and if we can find a place of trust and and, and of mutual support, encouragement, and of mutual accountability. I think that's really key because, again, it, it just takes it takes the focus off me and my struggle, and it actually makes us look outwards, and it enables someone else to to step in and, and walk with us in that as well. So I think those are two key things for me. Yeah, and, and, and looking back at the article, too, that you wrote, I'm not sure if it's uh, relevant to this, but you talk about salvation as this sort of the deliverance into a wider, more open space. And my understanding is in, the, in Egypt was sort of a metaphor, even understood within the Hebrew language, to be something that was seen as the narrow place and, and as this metaphor for sin. And for people who are who are struggling and, and enslaved to sin in that way, it does end up feeling like a very narrow space yeah. but you, you yeah. keep crying out and you keep following out and god does bring deliverance yeah. uh, that salvation in the time and present over time and it's again it's a really good exercise to read the psalms in this because again the psalmist there are some psalms where you know you can feel the psalmist wrestling with the agony of the delay and you know when i going back to that time when, when i felt god was absent then psalm 13 was a really important one to me where the psalmist is crying out you know how long O lord how long before you will deliver me and again, just recognizing that there's a there's a time of waiting. There's a time when we we just need to wait uh, quietly. Um, just going back to these, these amazing testimonies, you know that that book, the Heavenly Man, uh, where this man is, in, is is talking about his faith in 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 Asia, and he's in prison and he longs for a Bible. And he just says, "I prayed for a Bible, and four months later, God gave me a Bible." And I'm thinking, "Well, oh, okay, so he prayed every day for four months. I just patiently <laughs> waited. That uh, okay?" And we kind of think that if we pray and if God doesn't answer tomorrow or even later today, well, God hasn't heard me. And, uh, you know, the, the discipline of saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to wait and we're going to pray and we're going to wait and we're going to pray and we're going to wait. There's, you know, a little joke that, uh, uh, um, the length of a minute always depends on which side of the bathroom door you're standing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ian, we're almost, so I, think that, I think the same is true in prayer, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Ian, we're almost, <laughs> we're almost out of time, which I don't like, but I know that everyone who listens to this series and who's been following this are hearing a message on salvation. And I don't ever want these Wednesdays to come and go without, 
uh, someone having a chance to uh, understand that this extravagant gift of salvation is for them. So maybe you would just you would just pray at the end. Yeah, I'll do that. Let's do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you that he has become sin for us and dealt with everything wrong in our lives in his body on the tree. Thank you that he has, in dying, put to death our sin. And thank you that in rising again, he has given us new life and he's given us hope and he's poured out his life by by his spirit. And Father, for any who are listening now, uh, Father, I pray that they will be ready to receive this gift. It's a costly gift. It's, it's cost you. And it invites us to live a costly way of freedom in you and of loving others and forgiving them. But it's a free gift and it's open to all. Father, will you enable each person listening today to receive that wonderful free gift that you give us in Jesus. Will you pour your spirit on them and make it real today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ian, thank you so much. It's been such a delight. I could listen to you speak all day. It's been great to be with you, Bill and Peter. Really good to meet you too. Yeah, yeah, you too as well, Ian. Thank you so much. That wraps up our time for the day. If you listened to that last hour and you've said yes, and you said, I want to be forgiven, and I want to have a personal relationship with Jesus, and you made that decision today, I would just love to hear from you. You can send me an email, bill at myfaithradio.com, or you can send me a text at 877-933-2484. Have a great night, and God bless. I'll see you tomorrow.